Thank you, sir. Thank you, and thank you all uh, for having me, and thanks to everybody on Zoom for being here. I've already popped on and seen some of y'all there. Um, this is the only roundtable which, of which I am a member. Um, I was first a member in 1990 and remained a member until 1992 when I moved out east, and now I'm back, largely because of the awesome podcast recordings that you guys uh, have on here. So anybody watching, if you're not listening to those, oh, it's just a game changer. So um, I have a four-hour talk to give tonight in 45 minutes, so we'll hop right into it. <laughs> Midwest Civil War photo extravaganza, here we go. So when it comes to the Midwest and the Civil War, as far as I'm concerned, You've got Abraham Lincoln in Springfield. You've got U.S. Grant in Galena. You've got the 8th Illinois Cavalry. Um, you've got the USS Cairo. And you've got a big monument at Vicksburg. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys coming tonight. So we're good. Thank you. Saved you a little bit of time. Um, but no. Um, we have uh, you know, a certainty that when the Civil War came on, you knew that the Midwest was going to play an important part. Um, and I also immediately knew upon picking this topic that I would dreadfully fail in covering any of this to any detail. So if I only mildly anger most of you, I'll be really happy. Um, you know, you have the, literally the biggest you know, sectional conflict happening in the 1840s and 1850s, and even long before that, are really involving these, you know, the sort of South Midwest. If, you, if you're willing to count Missouri as a Midwestern state, it's right in the middle of it. Um, as you have the best, one of the best-selling books of the 19th century, Uncle Tom's Cabin, they're crossing a river, of course, to get into Ohio, and those very rivers are going to figure prominently in the Civil War. In the meantime, you've got Stephen Douglas, you know, the little giant fighting for popular sovereignty. Let's let these western expansion states decide on their own whether there can be slavery in these. And of course, you're going to have border ruffians come up from Missouri and you know others from New England come in with Beecher's Bibles. Those are guns. And they're going to erupt into bleeding Kansas, which also officially is a Midwestern state. I'm not sure if they consider it as such. <laughs> In the Midwest, of course, as you see here, you've got uh, iron mining going on in the UP in, in uh, Michigan. You've got, of course, lead uh, around uh, St. Louis and around uh, Galena and into southern Wisconsin and into Iowa. You've got the presidential election of 1860 focused on Chicago here at the Wigwam, where Abraham Lincoln will, of course, win um, the Republican nomination. And literally, the country is tearing itself apart over that election, and a lot of it is centered around this Midwest, uh, sort of Illinois. Illinois, Missouri area, and the South, of course, you know, cannot abide by Lincoln's election. Uh, they will begin to secede, and I know you know all that already. And of course, you know, you have volunteers here in this photo leaving the Edgar County Courthouse, um, headed for Pittsburgh Landing, uh, probably after the Battle of Shiloh, but we have some scant photos of the Civil War in the Midwest. A lot of them might not look like the nice, crisp ones you've seen. We'll talk about that as well. They're gathering in Detroit as well. Check out this incredible picture where not only do you have the scene, people following the soldiers down the street, but if you zoom in onto these photos, you can see people literally on rooftops trying to get a glimpse of this grand spectacle that is uh, unfolding before them. And of course, you have lots of Midwest towns heavily involved in all of this. You know, you've got the sacking of St. Louis, sectional conflicts going on here. And some of these border ruffians coming in, you know, to cause trouble in St. Louis. We have pictures of some of these people. These guys, in, in, in this case, are not, un, are not identified. But here's your view of some of these border ruffians coming in. 
in the most famous you know sacking of a midwest town you've got lawrence kansas you know what's going on there it's a terribly bloody event and we actually you know often focus on images like this instead we actually have a few pictures of some of those that paid you know that that were sacrificed in the effort this is james perrine or perrin um, who was one of those killed in the raid on lawrence kansas um, and in the meantime, you see other people gathering. Here's the 5th U.S. Colored Troops in Sandusky, Ohio. Um, and when you have regiments, one thing you definitely need are mascots. So you've got the rooster of the 41st Illinois. Uh, I think it's the 7th Ohio that has their own rooster sort of cockade that they put on their uniforms. And supposedly going into battle, their colonel would actually let out a big <laughs> rooster call. Anybody's welcome to do that if they would like to. You've got the little corporal from the uh, 22nd Ohio there. You've got uh, um, the old colonel who was supposedly in 18 different battles pulling artillery uh, uh, and, you know, carrying people on the battlefield. Of course, the most famous mascot from the Midwest has to be old Abe, um, you know, flying with the 8th, 8th Wisconsin. Not only is very picturesque, this is a tough-looking uh, eagle, but literally flying over the troops during battle, famously depicted in the Atlanta cyclorama that you can see while it was still under restoration here. And, you know, it, this dude, even when the eagle got kind of old and a little bit less picturesque on the right, um, you could see this was a cool-looking eagle, and maybe they should put that on a patch. Maybe the military should wear that or something once in a while, because I think it's a really cool-looking eagle. Of course, when you have the troops and their mascots heading out to the field, they had to encamp somewhere. Here's the 18th Ohio's camp, and you immediately see this doesn't look like a camp uh, that you see in the crisp wet plate photos taken in the Eastern Theater. These aren't the camps of Petersburg or Falmouth, Virginia. I mean, look at the gritty nature of a lot of this Western photography. Why? The most famous photographers, the ones exposing the most number of glass plates, are in the East. This is Matthew Brady, Alexander Gardner, James Gibson, Timothy O'Sullivan, Barnard Russell, and all these other people. It's their big collections that were purchased by the U.S. government and can be found in the archives at the National Archives at the Library of Congress. And those are the really crisp ones. Sometimes you got to work a little harder for these pictures of, you know, in the Western theater and the Western regiments, most of whom fought in the West, of course. A Southern photographer captured this camp of Indiana and Vermont troops actually in the South in a very neat and orderly camp. And sometimes they have, you know, small tent scenes. Here's some Wisconsin soldiers. Um, actually, I think it's the second, uh, just, you know, maybe a partial company, you know, showing their company street there. Now, if these looked like those crisp images, here's something I'm showing you here, where you can actually look at a picture and look at that guy standing near the left center on the farther away view. You can zoom in, see his stripes. This isn't even the highest resolution photo that I could find. And this is the type of resolution you can get at Libby Prison, which of course is part of this show because Libby Prison was deconstructed brick by brick, brought here with all of its rafters to Chicago and sat at the Coliseum for quite a while. Later would be removed brick by brick and put largely into an Indiana barn. And now those bricks have scattered to the wind, but most of the best rafters with the writing on them are actually at Pamplin Park in Virginia. If you look at Libby Prison here, this what is this photo taken about? I don't know, I would say 250 feet, maybe from the edge of the prison, maybe 200 feet. I'm, I'm not a golfer, um, but uh, you can zoom way in near that door and you can see just incredible detail from so far away. You can see, um, you know, so where some of the whitewashing has actually peeled away. You can see people uh, ready to go into and gawk at the prison. You can see that it used to be a warehouse. You might be able to catch on the leftmost shutter fish, bread, pork. 
uh, for when it used to serve as an actual warehouse there. So I'm encouraging you all. I don't have any sort of a uh, capture and a hold on this. Go to the Library of Congress, download the high resolution images, and you'll find new pictures within those pictures. And I think it'll be rewarding to a group like this. In any case, these troops have to be trained somewhere. They're going to be trained in Illinois at all sorts of places. You know that. Um, at Cairo, at uh, Rock Island, at Alton, Illinois. Here they are in Camp Butler in Springfield. And of course, they're at Camp Douglas in Chicago, which I understand. Maybe next month you're going to learn a little bit more about. But it's not just for what they're known for, as these places are all known as prisons. But of course, they are training camps as well. Here is an unidentified um, Union infantry company, probably as guards, but maybe training at Camp Douglas. But because they're in a city, in Chicago in this case, there are photographers, photographers who are going to go to the camps and actually record close-up views of the Confederate prisoners there. These are some of Morgan's raiders, actually, you know, wearing their original garb at Camp Douglas. You know, when you look at the drawings of the camp, the place looked pretty nice. I'd spend some time there. Look how peaceful it looks. Look at the nice buildings and everything. Of course, the photos show somewhat of a different reality there. There's a fire hydrant, apparently, in the foreground. You know, the troops are just gathered in front of their barracks. And this does not look like winter either, which I think winters in Chicago get kind of cold, from what I remember from when I was a kid. Um, and I mean, here are some, some of the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry. I don't know how these guys are managing to scrape up the funds to pay for these pictures. I don't think the close-up pictures were just done on spec by the photographers. I mean, look at these. Small groups, and in one case, an individual, actually. All these unidentified and all taken at Camp Douglas. And as Rob knows, I mean, this is not remotely um, the whole uh, catalog of the images available for there. We've got photos of Union infantry at Johnson's Island, notorious prison camp um, in Ohio, at Camp Morton outside Indianapolis, or in Indianapolis, actually. It takes on a Victorian feel. If you're stationed there, it looks pretty nice to be in Camp Morton, uh, Morton, maybe a little bit less so to be at the prison camp that is Camp Morton that looks a little bit more like Andersonville. You know, you see where the troops are. You see them down near a sluggish creep. Gone are the, the Victorian buildings that you saw in other cases. We've got pictures of prisoners at Rock Island, Illinois, and it's not just prisons, it's not just training camps. Of course, the Northern War effort, a lot of that effort, not just the minerals and whatnot, but the building is going to go on in the Midwest a lot. Here's one shot I was able to find in Cincinnati, Ohio, just showing a wagon park. park. And every one of those wagons had to, of course, be constructed of all these different materials made from a lot of different things. So they're gathering in every place, and they're needing to be supported with an unprecedented um, amount of actual stuff. Now, I know Jan will like this one. Here's the 1st Minnesota, soon to be a famous regiment here at Fort Snelling. Um, and you can go up there and still see this building standing there. And the 1st Minnesota was, as far off the top of my head, the first three-year regiment of the entire Civil War. They're at Bull Run. They're in the Westwoods in Antietam. They're at Gettysburg. I got some a Minnesota fan back there. And the angle isn't right, but I was able to just take a picture of the modern building. And you can just see. You could stand right where some of these men of the 1st Minnesota stood. And this isn't the only place that you can do that. Um, photographers are going to follow the troops out into the field. Here's some lone mountain howitzers of the 5th Ohio Cavalry. They needed these lighter guns, easier to transport and move around out in the field. And again, personifying the, the gritty feeling of the Western Theater photography collection here. Um, here's Battery A of the 1st uh, Illinois Light Artillery. I'm going to zoom in on this one so you can see some of the guns, some of the mounted officers. Um, and it's just got such a different look. And these guys are just laid back and chill. And I've got a lot more close-up to show you on this front as well. 
Here's the 1st Indiana Heavy Artillery, part of an incredible and extensive series that one of your members, Larry Hewitt, loves talking about at Port Hudson, one of the most photographed places of the entire Civil War. And most of these pictures of artillery were actually taken during the siege, active combat, not after the troops had left and they're recording the battlefield. This is during the actual military conflict, so incredible stuff. And although I had to cut out at least 25 pictures, this show was 400 slides, and I cut it down to 200, uh, which is still quite a few. Um, I had to cut out at least 20 pictures taken around Cairo. And this is uh, Camp Defiance down there. Um, you've got uh, a Chicago, the Chicago Light Artillery here, Battery B, 1st uh, Illinois, at Bird's Point in uh, Missouri here. Very cool shot. Um, the 20th Indiana Artillery, and I just love focusing in on some of these guys. Look, these guys are having a jaunty hat contest. The dude in the front, I don't even know how it's sitting on there and then you got the guy behind him like hey wait I like the more traditional sort of tilt there and by no means are these guys the winner of the jaunty, jaunty hat contest I'll get back to that in just a moment um, of course, you've got Michiganders out in the field, quite a few. In this case, a famous photo taken uh, on Marie's Heights. There's not a lot of Western theater people fighting in the East, but when they did, they made a difference. It's not just the Iron Brigade. In this case, it's Company K of the 1st Michigan Sharpshooters. You're, you're going to have sharpshooters coming from Wisconsin, from uh, Michigan, and from other places as well. And this unit is known to be composed largely of Native Americans. So you've got this, this photo was entitled Wounded Indians. This is right next to Marie House or Brompton on Maurice Heights. You got the 9th Indiana starting to show one of the many group views. I cut out at least 15 or 20 of them. Um, you got the 21st Michigan in a similar pose here. And when you zoom in on photos like this, again, you start to get not only some more, uh, you know, you got hats off in this one, but not only some of, uh, you know, the relaxed look, but you can start to see that the uniforms from the West, the people who came from the East and joined the Western armies knew that they were in a different place. They made fun of the paper collars, you know, coming from the East here. And these photos are extensive. Here's a camp of the 52nd Illinois. You can't really see the soldiers, but I thought you might find it interesting that they named the company streets and one of them was called Fox River Avenue um, along their camp here. Here's a blow up going for some jaunty hats again of the 44th Indiana. These guys, you know, you know, I guess they're wearing a lot of the same thing. They're much more uniform than some of the other Michigan and Indiana shots I just showed you. But um, you can see there's some lack of uniformity among them as well, as well as the 7th Wisconsin uh, on Chatham Heights opposite Fredericksburg here. Of course, when you look at the 7th Wisconsin, the 2nd Wisconsin, what are you going to see? Of course, hardy hats. And I, I love the hardy hat, but it also drives me nuts that people think that everybody wearing a hardy hat, oh my God, they must be in the Iron Brigade because they're the only black-hatted fellows in the entire uh, Civil War. That's not the case. In fact, this kid, what a great detail of a shot taken on the Georgia Tech campus, uh, now Georgia Tech, then Fort Hood or Fort X great shot, but you can turn around and there was another picture taken in the opposite direction. You can see a 150 on the guy's hardy hat, 150th New York, who also wore that attire. Now, just about the most photographed Illinois regiment of the Civil War is the 134th Illinois with at least 35 photos taken in their camp at Columbus, Kentucky. I only included three or so. You've got them on the march. You've got them uh, with coats off. You've got them hanging around their tents and all sorts of other things. You've got one photo just of their guns while they're in storage. It's really cool stuff. Um, here's the 9th Indiana. Um, here's the 82nd Illinois. These are the officers of the 82nd Illinois. They're looking pretty prim and proper. You know, a lot of them hats off, a little bit of jauntiness going on there. But then they took another 
another picture. Often they would take the official shot and then they would take one for themselves and their friends and that's when the booze comes out. You know, that's when they're, you know, grabbing and drinking and smoking and whatnot. And there are numerous, dozens of examples of some of these private photos taken by the soldiers of the Civil War. Here's some more of these 134th Illinois guys sort of uh, letting loose with some more booze. Some cards have come out and whatnot. And then you've got the 21st Michigan here. Now, none of the photos I've shown you so far, except maybe the distant tents, are candid, okay? The photographer's set up. He's got his wagon there. People know the photographer's there. It is a spectacle, okay? And therefore, these guys knew exactly what the photographer was doing. They had to stand still for a while, even though the exposure would only be three to seven seconds, um, sometimes longer if it was cloudy. But in this case, the photographer's like, okay, you guys get there. I can't see your face. You face the other way. You do this. And you too, you too. Get the chest set out and balance it on your knee. You know, as if they're going to play a full game like that. There's no way those pieces are going to stay there the whole time. So when you start zooming in, you start seeing more cool stuff. And I think in, in the end, it humanizes them. These guys would have liked paying, playing chess, but who's going to play chess between each other's laps? I mean, chess takes a while, even if it's quick. If you play against me, it's usually fast in the wrong way. Um, we've got lots of good gritty pictures of, you know, Midwestern bands in the Civil War. This is the 4th Minnesota while they're in Huntsville, Alabama. Here's the Tiger Band of the 125th Ohio with their big drum front and center. Here is the 12th Indiana probably um, band at that point. Um, so I wish we had more of these. There's some beautiful ones taken in the east of eastern um, bands as well. Here's the headquarters of the 21st Michigan. And I bet you if you looked into it, you would find somebody there who had connections with or who was a capable contractor. I mean, look at these beautiful uh, designs that they have onto their huts there. And a lot of people weren't so lucky. Um, here you have some uh, Ohio Calv uh, men, all unidentified, and unfortunately, you know, most of the portraits of the Civil War are unidentified. Uh, we have about 10,000 of the outdoor documentary pictures that I'm mostly showing you today, and then you've got two or, two or three million portraits. And those portraits were often on glass plates or tin, not easy to scratch into, and it might wreck the image if you did it, so you were relying on a label, and it's a real shame that we have very few of them, especially Confederate imagery, where they're mostly unidentified. I don't know if you all are familiar with Civil War photo sleuth. These are some guys at Military Images and uh, Virginia Tech who have gotten facial recognition software and have been, been able to identify dozens of unidentified photos by looking at the backdrops, by looking at people, what they're wearing and when, and narrowing it down. Sometimes there's another picture of that same person identified, and the facial recognition is pretty good. So check that out if you'd like. And even with the gritty look, I mean, look at this incredible picture um, of some, some of the men of the 17th Ohio. I call them men, but these could be high school kids as far as I'm concerned today. They could be north. They could be south. Um, they could be east or west, and they could be, you know, a bunch of millennials from today as well. I mean, I don't really see a difference in the way they're acting between people I, a lot of people I actually know. Here, you have some of those, some more Ohio soldiers. And by the way, let me just say that I'm going to show a lot of Ohio and Illinois views today. Why? Ohio is the most populous Midwestern state. It's the third most populous state in the Union. They've got more generals coming from Ohio than all the other Midwestern states combined, and almost twice as many. Okay, and Illinois is right behind them in population, but Ohio has the most troops. They have the highest percentage of people who uh, enlisted based on military age. So there's a lot of Ohio and Illinois connections here. It's just simply what is available. Here's some of these men of the 125th Ohio with, you know, their wives and their kids. Sometimes they came to camp. You all know that. But we have very few pictures of such things, and it's really cool when we're able to uncover them. By the way, the photos I'm showing you today, most of them are from the Library of Congress. A smaller percentage are from... Uh, the uh, incredible books by William C. Davis, 
The Image of War, which is a six-volume series, and you should page through that thing every year. It's worth it. I did it in advance of this talk. I looked through all six volumes, found things I'd forgotten about, and his accompanying Touched by Fire, where most of those pictures come from the U.S. Uh, Army Military History Institute, now known as AHEC. So, um, and I've gotten a few from the Chicago Historical Society as well. Um, of course, when you start to look at the famous Midwesterners, I can't go into a quarter of them, but I don't think there's any doubt about who the most famous is, and it's not John McClernand or John Pinkerton. Let's go with Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, we're going to claim him from Kentucky. We're in the land of Lincoln, so we've got Lincoln going on there. Maybe in the number two spot is not the guy in front, Alexander Hayes, who's our Pittsburgher here um, today. So we got Alexander Hayes there, but a young, who is that behind him? U.S. Grant, young U.S. Grant, check this out, kind of late 1840s, Hayes and Grant. Grant will be his boss, but not for long because Hayes won't live long enough. Um, and of course, Grant has to be in the number two spot. I'm not going to rank them all, but I'm going to go through some other ones. I think if you become president, you've got to be have a kind of a high spot there. And I, there's so many presidents from Ohio in the Civil War, that I can't even go through all of them. But look at this dude in the back, Rutherford B. Hayes, almost like knowing, you know what? I think I might be destined for bigger things. I'm not going to play around with your swords and your liquor or anything like that. I'm going to stand real stoic right in the back, just in case. Um, of course, you got William Tecumseh Sherman coming out of Ohio as well. You know, Michigan is going to give you George Armstrong Custer. Missouri's giving you Francis Preston, uh, Frank Preston Blair. Michigan's also giving you Alpheus Williams with his 12 core button right on his badge there. And he's got the coolest named horse of the Civil War. Anyone know it? Plug Ugly. I mean, come on. Bring up Plug Ugly. I'm ready to go into battle. Um, Michigan also gives you Israel Richardson, uh, who has, who's sometimes known as Fighting Dick. Sometimes it doesn't mean what it does today. Greasy Dick Richardson, best nickname of the Civil War, for sure. This dude would have been a Corps commander or probably an Army commander before the end, before he met his death for a mortal wounding at the sunken road of Antietam. Got a couple guys from the Midwest who will be better known for other things later. You got Lou Wallace, who slowed the Confederates at Monocacy, who I think didn't get lost at the Battle of Shiloh, more famous for Ben-Hur. And of course, you've got um, uh, Grenville Dodge, I think of Iowa, who's mostly known for the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, of course, you've got John Logan, who especially after the Civil War, I mean, cool name, cool appearance, uh, Black Jack Logan, who's wearing his 40 rounds badge, you can see, uh, blown up there. Um, but, you know, I've always liked him and, and his, his nickname and the mustache, but I never zoomed in on the mustache till I was doing this show, so I'll do it with you all. I just thought it was sort of big and bushy, but actually there are twists and curves to it. Look at the way it's coming back up underneath there. He was really looking for something even bigger. I find that cool. Um, this is uh, General John uh, Magruder, no, not that, uh, I'm sorry, MacArthur, not that MacArthur, and not the other MacArthur you think. This dude's a division commander um, fighting in the West, but of course there's a more famous MacArthur um, in this next photo. Before I talk about him, first left of center you see Emerson Opdyke, whose greatest moment had to be plugging the Union line, holding it, probably one of the most nightmarish places of the Civil War at the Cotton Gin and around the Carter House at Franklin. But on the far right, of course, you see Arthur MacArthur, um, 19 years old even at this time, lieutenant colonel already, you know, um, even before he moves on to greater things. And of course, um, his uh, descendant will be Douglas MacArthur. So good thing he survived some of his wounds he got. 
Um, I would say John T. Wilder, you know, who got tricked into surrendering at Munfordville, but then, you know, is going to manage to get his hands on some good guns, Henry Repeaters, and, you know, when I ask people on Facebook, they'd rather have two broken Henry Repeaters than 20,000 infantry. They love this gun, like it could load on Sunday and fire all week. John T. Wilder and his Lightning Brigade are going to achieve some great success during the Civil War. Now, you probably haven't heard of Henry Graham, and I'm just putting him in here because now you're entering sort of an interesting thing. He's got the gloves. You know, I'm talking about appearance here. Let's get a little bit more superficial for now. Um, you know, he's got that big beard, kind of an interesting look, and you can kind of go from there. Here's, you know, Albert Lee, 7th Kansas. I don't know if I really find this guy super good looking or a little bit screwy. I mean, he's got the super receding hairline like yours truly, but he's still growing the hair long. You know, then, you know, you, you go a little further into Illinois, and what's going on here? Um, you know, you got Ebenezer pain of the ninth Illinois. I think I sort of love it, but I hate it at the same time. Um, you know, I think it's very like pret-a-porter. This dude's ready. And I, you know, I don't know, wasn't it Lincoln who said, you know, do you think if I could choose my face, I'd have picked this one? You know, I don't know what's going on exactly here. I think he's a pretty good commander, but um, that's an interesting look. I'll just say that. And I mean, in the Midwest just produces these people. Like, I mean, you know, people talk to me all the time on Facebook about gun discipline or something like that. I mean, I don't know what this woman on the right did exactly, but I wouldn't, you know, I, she's putting a lot of trust into the dude on the left. And this dude, Cat Swallowed the Canary, who's kneeling over there, that guy's from the 14th Indiana, actually, um, and they're in front of Camp Michigan in a painted backdrop. We know that there. So they had a lot of fun for the camera as well. You know, Billy Crump of the 23rd Ohio appropriated uh, Rutherford B. Hayes' horse while they were at Gawley Bridge in West Virginia, rode off just to get provisions and came back and got a picture on that horse with a big smile. Yes, people smiled during the Civil War. Um, we tend to think, oh, they're not like us at all. They're just like us. They smiled whenever they could. And when you go into the depths of these photos, you look into enough of them. I've seen at least 150 smilers easily. Now, a thing that drives me crazy on social media is that there could be a picture of a bird and a chair. People say, oh, they're brothers. People are constantly convinced that people are brothers. But we do, I'm, I'm, I'm barely exaggerating. There's like, you know, a woman and, you know, and, and, you know, a white woman and a black man, and they think they're brothers or something like that. But we do actually have some pictures of brothers together, one Minnesota, one Indiana. There's a bunch of others. And I think when you actually look at them, you can just imagine. It pulls on your heartstrings, because how many stories have we all read about about one brother entering the last diary entry or burying the brother or writing home to their mother about the fate of their brother. There's three brothers at Antietam, two of which were leg wounds. One was killed, the other was sick, and they had to write home to their parents. So I think that gazing into these images, you know, um, you know, really does it. I think the Minnesota boys look more alike than the Indiana guys. And here's another guy from the first Minnesota. Um, what is it? Henry Wilgus. I don't know why he's in a Navy uniform. I guess maybe he had enough, like, you know, Westwoods at Antietam, Kadori Thicket at Gettysburg. Maybe I'll join the Navy um, <laughs> instead or something. I don't, know. I don't know. I assume that's why he's in a Navy uniform and why his nephew, I don't know, he's in a Zouav uniform. Have fun with that if you'd like. Um, Back to Illinois here, we've got these guys in a very playful, cool pose. Beautiful photo. You can zoom way in. I've always been interested if you can see the foreground sticking out of the frame at the bottom. There's like, a, 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 is it a glove? You know, is that a hand going on right there? And then the answer came to me, of course. It's Thing from, uh, from the Adams family there in a Civil War picture. 
Thanks for indulging me on that one. Um, when you go to the 44th Indiana, I'm finally willing to unveil my choice for the jauntiest hat of the Civil War. I don't know how it stays on his head. Check that out, man. Now, the dudes behind him are trying, and he just outdid them all. I mean, the, the guy behind him has got a wicked tilt, but nothing close to this guy. If you find somebody that beats this dude, let me know. You know, we have hundreds of photos of Civil War nurses, and very few of them are identified. We're happy that uh, Martha Brainerd of the 27th Michigan is identified. Some of her exploits are well known. In the original glass plate, you can zoom in and see the details of her dress. I just encourage you to do stuff like this. Here's a USCT soldier. This is Kager Mays. He's from Kentucky, but he's photographed at Rock Island, so damn it, I included it in here because this is a pretty good photo here. I would say one of the most more famous Illinois people is also Jenny Hodgers, okay? Known as who during the Civil War? Albert Cashier. So she wanted to step outside of her role. She wanted to join the unit. Apparently found that she liked it because she did it for like a half century until these newfangled things called cars came around. Then she was in a car accident, went to the hospital, and you know, there ain't no hiding it from there. Um, but it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, it looks, now you could look at him or her and know, okay, that looks like a female, but you know, we have the benefit of Monday morning quarterback here. You know, uh, getting to the more famous Illinois here, the Michigander, the youngest sergeant of the entire Civil War, youngest non-commissioned officer of the Civil War, Johnny Clem, Johnny Shiloh here, um, who is going to have an interesting and long life as a result of his actions early in the Civil War. But then we have a guy next to him, another Michigander um, named Randall. I didn't take the time to look him up or learn about him. You know, but really, I mean, with a, with a war with three million people in it, we have to pick our heroes. We have to pick the stories that we know. But it's an endless pursuit. Uh, we could start right now looking into some of the pictures that I've shown you today that I didn't have time to look at. You can make a life pursuit of that. Here's all unidentified soldiers, but clearly at the same backdrop. And we know that backdrop is at the Benton Barracks in St. Louis. So you, we, this might help us to identify some of these guys, or at least their units. Um, we're taking it from there. And you know, we just have a fiesta of identified and unidentified carts to visit of the Midwesterners. Remember some of those Midwesterners, namely those from Missouri, are Confederates. These guys are some of the rare identified Confederates um, from in pictures here. This is David Thompson um, from the Minutemen, the Calder Light uh, Infantry. Uh, they're the 4th Division Missouri State Guards. And the other guy is also a Missourian, um, uh, labeled as well. So we have some of these identified guys. Now let's remember that one in four of the soldiers who fought for Missouri were actually Confederate soldiers. So, you know, it's a little bit different fighting for Wisconsin than it is for Missouri, where you might actually be fighting against literally your neighbors in that case. Now, Illinois sent at least 100 people uh, to the Confederacy, and most states, north and south, had soldiers going to the other side, of course. I think one of the most famous you know, portraits of a young soldier in the Civil War has to be, uh, of at least of the Midwest, has to be this one of the 4th Michigan. This is Richard Cromer. And I, I don't know, he just can't be more than 16. And what a great photo of showing the innocence. And this is an early war picture. I show this one because, you know, these guys uh, from Ohio have to have the largest hardtack of the Civil War. Look at this. They're like, they're like club crackers that haven't been broken across or like matzahs at Hanukkah or something like that. I mean, check these dudes out. If you're going to break your teeth, let's just do it right and get the biggest possible hardtack. I've never seen anything like that except in this picture here. Um, you know, here we have, you know, the first commander of the Iron Brigade, or the, the well-known as, you know, uh, Colonel or now General King, standing on the steps of Falmouth, along with Anderson Cooper and, Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt's uh, ancestor, Judson Kilpatrick over there, who, you know, had a way of rising through the ranks. Um, 
And we just have lots of other guys. Here's two Wisconsin soldiers, guy on the right with a nice millennial man bun um, with a young girl, maybe his daughter, I can't tell. So for all this that I've already done, you know, all these soldiers go and do something, right? I haven't shown you really a single battlefield yet. They go out to battlefields, and man, east, west, trans-Mississippi, everywhere you look, the, you have the Midwesterners fighting. Here's Nathaniel Lyon at Wilson's Creek, August of 1861, just a month after Bull Run, where Michigan soldiers played an important part in that battle. Here you have him encouraging on an Indiana regiment. And when you start to look at these uh, battles in the Transmiss and in the West, you just start to see they're all fought by Midwesterners. Look, Missouri, Kansas, Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, Kansas. Um, and you're going to see this as a, th as, a, uh, as a thing throughout. Here we are at the hornet's nest at Shiloh near the bloody pond. I challenge you, how many non-Midwest units can you find? It's all Illinois, Iowa, Ohio, um, Indiana. And if I zoomed it out, you'd see even more than that. And of course, it's not a surprise, therefore, that a full one-third of the photos taken at Shiloh during the Civil War, because uh, there are three, and this is one of them, shows an Illinois battery near the visitor center. There's three. There's two of the ships at Pittsburgh Landing, and there's this one, uh, which might be a reversed picture. It's no surprise that at Antietam, when you zoom in on this uh, terrible photo called a contrast, because you've got an unburied Confederate and you've got a grave of a Union soldier next to him. Uh, you know, to the victor goes the spoils. When you hold the field, you bury your own first. And when you zoom in, according to William Frazanito and my, you know, anybody who looks at it, you can see that the headboard uh, next to the mound says J.A. Clark, J.A.C. 7th Michigan. And John A. Clark's from Monroe, Michigan, and we know exactly um, a lot about him. And we know he's fighting right near the Hagerstown Pike, which, by the way, is directly behind the guy standing over the grave there. Just about 70 yards past there, you'd be on the Hagerstown Pike. And if you go over to the Hagerstown Pike here, um, you see some of the dead, all but certainly, from Stark's Louisiana Brigade. And if you were to look past that second fence, there would be Wisconsin soldiers of the Iron Brigade fighting against these guys. If you pivot to the left and look to the north, there would be more Wisconsin soldiers coming down on both sides of the Hagerstown Pike over there. No surprise that when, after the Battle of Antietam, you go to the hospital and there's an Indiana surgeon being photographed. This is Dr. Hurd, just north of the battlefield. No surprise that it's the Iowa soldiers being depicted here as they advance on Corinth after the Battle of Shiloh. Um, and Corinth itself had a flood of Midwestern soldiers. Here's a great three-plate photo you can put together into a panorama. You can go find that place today, as, as I've done, and you can see on the bottom there. But look at that kind of platform on the right of the old photo in that old warehouse building. That served as a backdrop for at least 15 different photos of Midwestern soldiers gathered at Corinth. Why? because there was a photographic studio right next to there. And you can actually see them selling photos on the front and on the side. Uh, this business changed hands a few times. You can see their skylight sort of uh, going right up there. So you can see they're doing indoor portraits and outdoor group views. It's no surprise that the 21st Wisconsin, a new unit that had just left camp a few days earlier, suddenly they're crossing from Ohio into Kentucky just days before the Battle of Perryville. And where's the 21st Ohio, uh, Wisconsin going to end up as a new unit right at Perryville? They're going to be right on at the base of Orchard Knob in a cornfield, surrounded by veterans there as the Confederates were pushing the Union soldiers back from one ridge to the next. You're talking about Illinois, Wisconsin. Again, Perryville is mostly Midwestern soldiers there. And you could look at any part of the battlefield to see that on the Union side. 
at Champion Hill, you have not only not the only place where Missouri Confederates are fighting Missouri um, Union soldiers. And when you look down the Union line near the Champion Hill crossroads, what am I seeing? Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Iowa, Missouri, Iowa, Missouri, again and again and again. Um, you would find the same thing at the Railroad Redoubt. You can see the blue areas where the American Battlefield Trust, we've been able to save land on both sides of the attack at the Railroad Redoubt um, on the 21st or 22nd of May, uh, 1863. These are Iowa and Wisconsin soldiers capturing that redoubt for a short time. And when you go down to the most famous photo of Vicksburg, it's no surprise that you're seeing a camp of the Illinois soldiers. And I like this blow up because it shows that the actual entrenchments went right up to the Shirley House. Shirley House Unionists, which is pretty interesting as well. It's no surprise that when you look at the field of Pickett's Charge, where the trust is trying to save the Pickett's Buffet tract in yellow there, that it's Ohio Midwestern soldiers that are moving to outflank the Confederates as they move toward the Bryan Barn and towards Cemetery Ridge. Nor that the 6th Michigan is depicted here after the, during the retreat from Gettysburg. Nor that at the Battle of Chickamauga, when you look at the point in the question mark right there, that all you see are Midwestern soldiers with a few Kentuckians mixed in there. And nor the next day, when you look onto Snodgrass Hill and see who made the Rock of Chickamauga the Rock of Chickamauga, you're talking, I'm going to just look, Ohio, Illinois, Ohio, Illinois, Ohio, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Ohio, Michigan, Ohio, Michi M Michigan, Indiana, I could just go on and on. They're all Midwestern soldiers, they're holding line, allowing Thomas to become the Rock, allowing that army to get back to Chattanooga, and allowing Grant and others to work their magic uh, a couple of months later. Same thing over on Missionary Ridge. And then these Illinois soldiers who capture Missionary Ridge and the Midwestern soldiers who help capture Lookout Mountain want to pose up there. Of course, here's the 7th, Indiana, 7th Illinois. And notice how these guys, you know, they might be sitting near the edge, but they're not, you know, they, they care about life. They want to return home to their families. And like the Ohioans, you know, you got a guy a little bit closer to the edge, but he's standing on some pretty level ground. You know, they're taking some risks, but nothing too bad yet. But when you got the non-Midwesterners up there, they're taking unnecessary risks. You know, I don't know who these guys are, but there's just no way these guys would take that risk that way. And these dudes here are definitely not from the Midwest. And I want to make sure you all understand. You know, I've stood out on Point Lookout before. I've been on these rocks before, you know, when it was open for a special occasion. And let me tell you, this isn't like that there's some sort of a platform below you that you can't see. If you fall off this rock, you're going to die. I mean, no, no maybe, no mortal wounding. You are dead. And yet, you know, you've got these non-Midwesterners, these non-Midwesterners taking unnecessary, have you ever seen the soles of Civil War shoes? And look at this guy pointing off the edge. His friend is like concerned about him, putting his hand over there. And then the biggest non-Midwest guy of the Civil War, look at this dude. He should be kicked out of the Midwest if that's where he's from. Imagine being this dude's parent. And thinking like, God, that kid has always been that way. Look at this dude dangling his knee down below. My God. And I mean, you know, it's probably this dude that put the toy soldiers up there in the first place. And I hope that happens to them. The good thing is, is that we've learned a lot. We've seen these pictures. And us as a society, we know not to take these risks anymore. We, we wouldn't, certainly not for a picture. I mean, how stupid would you have to be? to do something like this. So we're so much better off than the people of the past. Uh, was that one of y'all here? <laughs> um, 
Same thing at Mansfield, Louisiana. Look at the Carter uh, House and the cotton gin at Franklin, and you'll see almost all Midwesterners commanded by an Ohio soldier. Look at Fort McAllister, where the march to the sea comes to an end, where you can see the footprints of the Ohio soldiers, I think the 45th um, and, and an Illinois regiment behind them, who are trying to escape the landmines going around that area, and you can see exactly where they walked. And the final attack at the last land battle, um, one of the last land battles of the Civil War here at the Battle of Bentonville, largest one in North Carolina, I, I challenge you to find a single non-Midwest unit that is trying to cut the Confederate Army off from their last escape, helping um, actually to result in uh, their surrender just a couple weeks later. Now, so far I've only talked about land. Uh, but this is the USS Ohio, you know, by now largely, you know, obsolete ship of the line by, by 1862. You can only do so much with this. You know, the big Minnesota was a powerful ship, but, you know, nothing compared to the new mix of ironclads that are going to be patrolling the rivers uh, in the West, those rivers that made things so much easier for the Union to conquer so much territory. Um, here we have the powerful uh, Baron DeKalb, which sounds like a good Midwest and Chicago name to me, or Illinois name to me, and it used to be called the St. Louis here. You've got the Galena um, for, for this group here, and of course, when you go to Mound City in Cairo, you've just got dozens of pictures taken of everything under the sun. Now, none of them look particularly clean, and none of them look like a place you'd want to go during the Civil War, but the Alex Scott came that Mark, Mark Twain called a stately craft, showing up to lend it a little bit more uh, you know, respect for that area along the river. You have floating wharves, and you have dozens of naval images that I actually had to cut out as well. Now, you have this whole time, you know, the Ladies Reefs, Relief Society. So many of these women are unidentified, but here we have them. I put them with their names because they're actually unidentif totally identified, the Iowa Women's Relief Corps here. And that, there's going to be a lot of that needed, not just because of the wounded, but as the war goes on, you have prisoners being released. Here's some uh, being released from Camp Chase, Ohio. Here is, our, is the 19th Indiana. These are the officers coming out of a rebel prison. I can't remember exactly where. I think it's in Alabama. They seem to be, they've got their hats still, their clothes are still on their backs pretty good, but those are the officers, the enlisted men of that same unit, um, I'm sorry, the non-commissioned officers didn't do quite as well here, you can see it. And of course that's not nearly as bad as some of the worst images we've seen, of which this is not remotely the worst. This is um, a guy named Brochiers, he's an Indiana soldier, he came out of Belle Isle, just a terrible place at Richmond, Virginia, if you ever get to hear that story. And as you know, this is unfortunately not as bad as it got when it came to pictures afterward. Of course, the Civil War comes to an end um, at around the same time that Lincoln will be assassinated. And in that, again, it's all eyes on the Midwest as his uh, funeral uh, makes its way, uh, you know, the solemn procession all the way back to the home he left earlier. Um, the line at Springfield seemed to just snake forever um, as they went to pay their final respects to Lincoln. And of course, all the veterans who were there for all this stuff, you know, throughout the war, all gathered. They're going to gather together. They're going to form groups in every Midwest state, and indeed in most Midwest uh, counties or small groups of counties, Michiganders, um, Minnesota soldiers, uh, Wisconsin soldiers, and I had to cut out about 25 of these as well. The veterans loved having their pictures um, taken at this point um, uh, from Illinois, and of course they're going to proudly wear their ribbons wherever they went, including to the 1913 and the 1938 reunion um, at Gettysburg. And of course these veterans wanted something a little bit more. They're going to erect monuments. This one in Cleveland, um, you 
you know, showing the deeds of the Ohio soldiers after the Battle of Antietam, erected during the Civil War, maybe the first regimental monument um, of all during the Civil War. And if you zoom in on it, you can actually see future President Hayes in a shadow just to the left of the monument and future President William McKinley, two to the right of the monument over there. And you can't take a step in the Midwest without seeing a Civil War monument, it seems, sometimes. You know, and I'll note that, you know, while some, uh, you know, monuments have come down in recent years, you know, none of those have been on battlefields. Not one, to my knowledge, has come down from a battlefield. And we'll keep looking at that there. Not everybody has a Franz Siegel statue or wants one in their community. Uh, but there it is on the right. There at cemeteries, you've got Confederate, you know, again in Missouri, you know, you've got 40,000 Confederates, I believe, serving for the South, so you've got monuments to them as well. In and out of cemeteries, you've got Grant, you've got other people, and in every Midwest major city, and even medium city, you're going to have a Civil War monument. And you're going to have Alfred Wilson, of course, the Minnesotan who is known, confirmed as the last surviving Civil War veteran, died in 1956. And I, I'd like to talk about this just briefly before I wrap up. I've got a couple more stories to tell. But just this idea that here that was that Civil War, and for so many people, you know, of our acquaintance, not for y'all, but so many people just consider the Civil War so far away. And when I think that I, I only missed the last Civil War veteran by 11 years, that I've shook in the hand of more than 100 people that shook the hands of Civil War veterans, when I think that many of some of you all were alive when Civil War veterans were still alive, that I've been to one-fifth of all of the Gettysburg battle anniversaries, that Civil War veterans, you know, were on the Gettysburg battlefield seeing tanks and planes flying overhead. They saw two world wars, color TV, and all sorts of things. It just wasn't that long ago, which happens to be my job, by the way, to convince people to drag the past forward, and of course, that in most essentials were just like them. There's a monument at the site of the Wigwam, of course. Uh, many of you have probably walked there, right next to the Chicago River there. And of course, there are monuments on battlefields, as I mentioned, to Ohio, Indiana, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Illinois, Kentucky, I'll count them for now, and, uh, and Missouri. And of course you have the huge Illinois monument on the left here at Vicksburg, so big that it took up one-fifth of the entire budget of the state of Illinois for, I think it's 1905. <laughs> one-fifth of the entire year for the whole state went to this. How could you make that happen? Well, maybe because Congress and every state legislature was completely composed, almost entirely composed of Civil War veterans, and they could do whatever they want. And one of the things they did that I'm happy they did was start the battlefield preservation movement, establishing some of the main national military parks. Now, two last things uh, before I uh, cede the mic. Um, one of them is this guy, Freeman Connor. I'm a Gettysburg guy. This guy was the lieutenant colonel in charge of the 44th New York on Little Round Top. Before that, he moved to Chicago from New York in the 1850s, around the same time Elmer Ellsworth did. I think they knew each other for Freeman Connor would end up joining the Ellsworth Zouaves, which is then connected with the 44th New York, which brings him to Little Round Top. Little Round Top, of course, uh, that unit is under the command of a guy named Rice. But his brigade commander, a guy named Vincent, is going to be mortally wounded. Rice gets moved up, so Connor takes command of the regiment on Little Round Top. He's later wounded in the war, but survives. Lives another uh, roughly 48 years, I think it is. And when you look at his pension record, you see that he's, he's walking on the south side. He had just come from a meeting. He was with his daughter, and he's walking toward his home. I, think it, I didn't put it on here, but I think it's about 43rd Street. But right next to what is now the Haven Entertainment Center, um, he kind of took a little left right off the street and dropped dead 
from a heart attack, okay? So I found this in his pension record, and, you know, of course I wanted to go there, and my dad, you know, who ran a trucking business in Chicago, said, ah, that's a terrible neighborhood. At least in 1990, he's like, we're not going. And I was like, come on, we gotta go. He's like, we'll go at 5 a.m. In my memory, my dad's no longer alive, but in my memory, everything he said to me was in that voice. I'm really proud of you, <laughs> you know, something like that. So. So we went there, he had like a knife with him for all the good that would do. We went at 5, 5.30 a.m. and he kind of pulled over and I got out and I was kind of running over to the spot to get my pictures. And afterward, the only advice he had for me was to adopt perhaps a more masculine run when I'm in such a neighborhood. <laughs> the helpful family advice that you can only get. Here's a Google Street view of the spot where one Civil War veteran died of natural causes as an older guy. Now. Um, this last story, I'm going to show you a picture by a Vermont photographer. His name is Houghton, and Houghton was from Vermont. He only recorded uh, Vermont soldiers in the field. Incredible, rare photos you don't see much. Uh, this photo not only adorns uh, the uh, cover of the Ken Burns series, it's a very well-known photo taken outside of Washington, and those boulders on the right are still there in a Virginia subdivision. I need to go see them someday. Um, but uh, why am I telling you this if this is a Midwest show? Well, first of all, I'm going to say that even in New York, in the Seinfeld show, I don't know how many of you noticed, but in his apartment, between them above there, you see that photo is actually on Seinfeld's wall the entire time. But that's a New York thing, so that's not why I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that because George Houghton, the photographer, later moved to Wisconsin. Specifically, he moved to the Wisconsin Dells and took up residence and sold his photography wares out of this building still there in the Wisconsin Dells. Now, my friend, um, who's a Houghton expert who found this, was looking for his grave in the Dells. And he found the grave. The grave is unfortunately unmarked. You can, it's, it's actually right in the foreground here. It's completely unmarked, but he was able to use the cemetery records to figure where it is. What's interesting about this is two things. One, that the little fenced-in area you see on the distant right, that is Bell Boyd's grave. Perhaps of less interest, but of more interest to me, is that the photography studio is only two miles from there. And about a mile from the photography studio in uh, the middle of, 18, of 1966, my parents were in a motel and got busy, okay? And that is what brings me to you here today. That's right, I was conceived <laughs> in the Wisconsin Dells and uh, then went to Evanston, and that's why I picked up William Frazanillo's book, and that's why I'm before you today. So I thought it inappropriate but right to tell that story before I conclude. Thank you so much. Thank you. Am I supposed to take questions? Oh, there's one. It's somewhere near Cottage Grove. But you see that I, I made a terrible screen cap there. Um, do you recognize any of the other cross streets? I see Ellis Avenue there. That's where, yeah, that's where the Elwood Kings used to hang out. <laughs> you would know about this, right, I guess? <laughs> okay, good, good. A lot of murders on Did you solve the death of Freeman Connor? <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I see, I see, yeah, it's, be, it's between Drexel and Ellis. All right. All right, what else we got? Sir? Uh, could you describe the uh, type of cameras that were available uh, at that era? Um, absolutely. So, you know, so first of all, there are a couple of different processes, but most of the photos I showed you weren't tin types. They were rather made on a glass plate. 
And that glass plate could be 4 by 10 inches to make a 3D stereo image. You've seen those, the ones you use those cards and look at them that way. Um, um, so, so most of them are that way. The difference about that compared to a daguerreotype on copper or a tintype on iron, actually, although it's called a tintype, the main difference is that you had a photographic negative. When you had a glass plate, you could put a black background behind it. It becomes an ambrotype. And if you just put it in, in the sun with some light-sensitive paper, you could make a print and another one and another one and another one, okay? Now, all the different cameras could take those three, you know, could at least take tintypes and wet plate cameras. But basically what you're going to do is take a big box with a fancy, usually German ground glass lens on the front of it, and it's going to have a light-proof case. Why does that have a light-proof case? Because you need to expose the plate to light using silver nitrate, then put it in the light-proof box and bring it to the big boxy camera. They could be little, doing 4 by 10 prints. They could be smaller. They could be much larger, taking 11 by 14 or 11 by 12 pictures, imperial pictures. Um, so you had a lot of options. And you're going to run that light-proof case over here where you already set up your camera, and then remove a slide that exposes the light to the plate, then count one, two, three, four, maybe five, six, seven, depending on the lighting conditions, put it back in, then run it back to your darkroom and do it. Those plates were fragile glass, you know, and when you went out into the field to do a speculative work, you had to carry them all with you with the sensitive chemicals that had to be just right to work. It's no surprise that in the rare case where Southerners got photographic chemicals, you know, they didn't run the blockade, oh, get me some collodion and silver nitrate. You know, that's not exactly what they needed. So they would actually, uh, um, you know, uh, if they were able to get any, they would take portraits because it's so much easier. Big camera out in the field, you know, where you're getting rained on and trying to do that stuff away. So they're incredibly simple cameras to answer your question, I think. Big boxes with lenses on them with a light-proof thing, and then, you know, a hood over them so you could see out. And the way that you would really expose it usually was with the lens cap. You'd take the slide out and then just go like that. They were the most simple things of all, just like, you know, Daguerre's original camera, which the first of which took eight hours um, to expose. Yeah, and in some ways their lenses are better. Let me say one more thing to add to this. You know, because if we've got some shutter bugs in the room, which we usually do, um, the best digital cameras today are just beginning to approach the resolution of a 7 by 9 glass plate negative. You, you try to show me, you take a picture from 250 feet away of a building like Libby Prison and see if you can see individual bricks that well. See if you can see people's fingerprints from 15 feet away with your great SLR and really see it. Why? Because unlike a 35 millimeter negative, there's no grain. And unlike a digital picture, there are no pixels. It's a chemical sheet, which allows you to just blow it up more than almost anything else. Now, the best digital 4x5 SLRs are approaching you know, the, the best condition wet plate cameras, but they're not really there yet. Sir? Yeah, great, great question. Um, no. You know, you would have had people looking with magnifiers, but generally speaking, the Civil War photographers, from what I understand, and incredibly, we don't have journals of Civil War photographers. Oh, my God. We would kill for the, one of these things. There's one. The guy wants a million dollars for it. Um, and he shows little bits of a page here and there, but, you know, he wants his price. So you, we haven't seen him yet. So we really don't have those. But we have no evidence at all that photographers would have any idea that any of those things would be seen later, and nor did they put those things into the pictures. The things that they put into their pictures intentionally are evident. 
you know, they would place props. They would do things like this. Now, that didn't stop people from photobombing. I didn't show you any of those today and, and all these other little details, but they didn't seem to compose their photos as if the details would be seen. In fact, since most photos of the Civil War are taken in 3D, they composed them low to the ground with something in the fore, middle, and background to increase the 3D effect. They were looking for art, composition, and 3D when they did it, not the details. Great question. Sir, then sir. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it wasn't. So from all the way up until the early 1900s, they had no ability to produce, reproduce halftone. That's these. Halftone printed photos like prints in a mass periodical. So what were they doing until then? Engravings and woodcuts. So it was big business, you know, to take your Civil War photos, send them over to an engraver, and then sell the rights of that to Harper's Weekly or Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper or something like that. So that was it until the early 1900s. You didn't have that. And that is why you don't have the first massive series of Civil War photography books. Francis T. Miller's Photographic History of the Civil War, 10 volumes. You should also go through that uh, every year if you ask me. It doesn't take that long. Go to your library. Some of y'all have time on your hands. Um, and and it's, it's no surprise that those didn't come out until 1911 because the technology didn't allow for it. The earliest Civil War photography books, Alexander Gardner's album, um, sketchbook, and George Barnard's, each page of each copy had to be individually printed and pasted onto the book. Sir? Correct. Wow. Very cool. And you know what? Thirteen days before the first state seceded. Wow. Very cool. Sir. Before the photos, you had all those awesome illustrations of Harper's Weekly. Are those accurate, do you think, or were they embellished? Yeah. It de to me, it depends. Uh, good question. To me, it depends on the illustrator. We can take Alfred Wad's. You want to say Wad, but apparently it's Wad. Uh, we can take his drawings out to the places he sketched and judge how accurate are the rocks and the terrain and accurate. Now, sometimes the engraver say, we need something here. Let's add some soldiers. Let's throw in a wagon. And we have evidence of that as well. By and large, they're very accurate if they were based on something I witness. I mean, I've seen some engravings that are like, you know, the Dunker Church is a, is a mansion, <laughs> you know. So it really depends. You know, the best ones you see, the best engravings are based on a photograph, based from a Gardner photo. Do you see that? But the ones that are based on some uh, you know, initial drawings in the, ski, in the field, some you see in Battles and Leaders, highly accurate in my experience. Good. Sir? Yeah, we know uh, images like that Devil's Den, when that soldier was in the, in the rocks. We you know, look out mode. What images today are resonating with the current generation? Yeah, I, you know, that's a great question um, because I do this. My 90% my of my Civil War Facebook page is just dedicated to showing photos and whatnot. And I think, you know, it's the photo within the photo that humanizes the people. That's why I said it earlier. It's, it's, it's not the obvious things that you see, although people love those too. But it's when you zoom into a photo and see somebody doing something that you might do. 
you know, something more like what social media is like today. There's somebody having fun. There's somebody, you know, doing something they shouldn't be doing. There's somebody smiling. There's somebody, there's a pet. Oh my God, pets are very popular. I had to throw some in, you know, of course, because people like the animals, you know, and still to this day, as far as I'm concerned, I didn't show that many photos of the dead, but they resonate. There's something about showing those who made the sacrifice at these places that really resonates. Facebook and some of the other, and YouTube like to, you know, block them if one person complains, it seems, but they still, people still click through and see them, and I think those resonate a lot as well. This is, there's a one more. I'll take more questions offline if there are any more beyond that. Everybody on Zoom, I can't take your questions, but thank you for sticking with us. Thank you all for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs>